Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody comes back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? Out of the Deep by Walter de la Mare. The steely light of daybreak, increasing in volume and intensity as the east grew larger with the day, showed clearly at length that the prodigious yet elegant Arabian bed was empty. What might tenderly have cradled the slumbers of some exquisite fair of romance now contained no human occupant at all. The whole immense room, its air dry and thin as if burnt, was quiet as a sepulchre. To the right of the bed towered a vast and heavily carved wardrobe. To the left, a lofty fireplace of stone flanked by its grinning frigid dogs. A few cumbrous and obscure oil paintings hung on the walls, and like the draperies of a proscenium, the fringed and valanced damask curtains on either side, the two high windows, poured down their motionless cataract of crimson. They had been left undrawn overnight, and yet gave the scene a slight theatricality, a theatricality which the painted nymphs disporting themselves on the ceiling scarcely helped to dispel. Not that these coy and ogling faces suggested any vestige of chagrin at the absence of the young man, who for some weeks past had shared the long nights with them. They merely smiled on, for after all Jimmy's restless head upon the pillow had never really been in harmony with his pompous, inanimate surroundings the thin high nose, like the beak of a small ship between the fast-sealed lids and narrow cheekbones, the narrow bird-like brow, the shell of the ear slightly pointed. If, inspired by the distant music of the spheres the painted creatures had with this daybreak broken into song, it would certainly not have been to the tune of Oh, where and oh, where is my little dog gone? there was even less likelihood of Jimmy's voice now taking up their strains from out of the distance. And yet, to judge from appearances, the tongue within that head might have been that of an extremely vivacious talker, even though, apart from Mrs. Thripps, its talk, these last few days, had been for the most part with himself. Indeed, as one of his friends had remarked, "'Don't you believe it? Jimmy has pots and pots to say, though we don't say it. That's what makes him such a damn good loser.' Whether or not, if Jimmy had been in the habit of conversing with himself, he must have had odd company at times. Night after night he had lain there, flat on his back, his hands crossed on his breast, a pose that never failed to amuse him, a smooth eminence in the dark, rich quilt about sixty inches from his chin indicated to his attentive eye the points of his toes. The hours had been heavy, the hours had been long. Still, there were only twelve or so of utter darkness in the most tedious of nights, and the matins tinkled at length. Excepting the last of them, a night which was now apparently forever over, he had occupied this majestic bed for about six weeks, though on no single occasion could he have confessed to being really at home in it. He had chosen it not from any characteristic whim or caprice, and certainly not because it dominated the room in which his uncle Timothy himself used to sleep. Yes, and for forty years on end, only at last to expire in it. He had chosen it because, when its Venetian blinds were pulled high up under the fringed cornice, it was as light as a London April sky could make it, and because, well, 
Just one single glance in from the high narrow doorway upstairs had convinced him that the attic in which he was wont to sleep as a small boy was simply out of the question. A black, heavy flood of rage swept over him at sight of it. He had never before positively realised the abominations of that early past. To a waif and stray, any kind of shelter is of course a godsend, but even though this huge, sumptuous barrack of a house had been left to him, or rather abandoned to him, by his Uncle Timothy's relict Aunt Charlotte, Jimmy could not, even at his loosest, have been described as homeless. Friendless, rather, but that of his own deliberate choice. Not so very long ago, in fact, he had made a clean sweep of every single living being, male or female, to whom the term friend could, with some little elasticity, be applied. A little official affair, to put it politely, eased their exit. And then, this vacant hostel. The house, in fact, occupied only by a caretaker in the service of his aunt's lawyers, had been his for the asking at any time during the last two or three years, but he had steadily delayed taking possession of it until there was practically no alternative. Circumstances accustom even a young man to a good many inconveniences. Still, it would have been a little too quixotic to sleep in the street, even though his Uncle Timothy's house, as mere property, was little better than a white and unpleasing elephant. He could not sell it, that is, not en masse. It was more than dubious if he was legally entitled to make away with its contents. But quite apart from an extreme aversion to your Uncle Timothy's valuables in themselves, you cannot eat, even if you can subsist on, articles of virtue. Sir Richard Grenville, a hero for whom Jimmy had every respect, may have been accustomed to chewing up his wine-glass after swigging off its contents, but this must have been on the spur of an impulse hardly in obedience to the instinct of self-preservation. Jimmy would have much preferred to balance a chair at the foot of his uncle's Arabian bed and salute the smiling lips of the painted nymphs on the ceiling, though even that experiment would probably have a rather gritty flavour. Still, possession is nine points of the law, and necessity is the deadly enemy of convention. Jimmy was unconscious of the faintest scruples on that score. His scruples, indeed, were in another direction. Only a few days ago, the day, in fact, before his first indulgence in the queer experience of pulling the bell, he had sallied out with his Aunt Charlotte's black leather dressing-bag, positively bulging with a pair of bow candlesticks, an illuminated missile, mutely exquisite, with its blues and golds and crimsons, and a tiny old silver-gilt bijouterie box. He was a young man of absurdly impulsive aversions, and the dealer to whom he carried this further consignment of loot was one of them. After a rapid and contemptuous examination, this gentleman spread out his palms, shrugged his shoulders, and suggested a sum that would have caused even a more phlegmatic connoisseur than his customer's Uncle Timothy to turn in his grave. And Jimmy replied, nicely slurring his R's, Really, Mr. Sanso, it is impossible. No doubt these things have an artificial value, but not for me. I must ask you to oblige me by giving me only half the sum you have kindly mentioned. Rather than accept your figure, you know, I would, well, perhaps it would be impolite to tell you what I would prefer to do. Dies ire, dies ille, and so on. The dealer flushed though he had been apparently content to leave it at that. He was not the man to be easily insulted by a good customer, and Jimmy's depredations were methodical. 
With the fastidiousness of an expert, he selected from the rare and costly contents of the house only what was light and portable and became inconspicuous by its absence. The supply, he realised, though without any perceptible animation, however recklessly it might be squandered, would easily last out his lifetime. Certainly not. After having once made up his mind to accept his Uncle Timothy's posthumous hospitality, the real difficulty was unlikely to be a conscientious one. It was the attempt merely to accustom himself to the house, the hated house, that grew more and more arduous. It falsified his hope that, like other experiences, this one would prove only the more piquant for being so precarious. Days and moments quickly flying, just as one funny old charwoman, Mrs. Thripps himself, and the past. After pausing a while under the dingy and dusty portico, Jimmy had entered into his inheritance on the last afternoon in March. The wind was fallen, the day was beginning to narrow, a chill crystal light hung over the unshuttered staircase. By sheer force of a forgotten habit, he at once ascended to the attic in which he had slept as a child. Pausing on the threshold, he looked in, conscious not so much of the few familiar sticks of furniture, the truckle bed, the worn strip of Brussels carpet, the chipped blue-banded ewer and the basin, the framed illuminated text on the walls, as of a perfect hive of abhorrent memories, that high cupboard in the corner from which certain bodiless shapes had been wont to issue, and stupid him, cowering out of his dreams, the crab-patterned paper that came alive as you stared, the window cold with menacing stars, the mouse-holes, the rusty great trumpet of every wind that blows, these objects at once lustily shouted at him in their own original tongues. Quite apart from themselves, they reminded him of incidents and experiences which at the time could scarcely have been so nauseous as they now seemed in retrospect. He found himself suffocatingly resentful even of what must have been kindly intentions. He remembered how his Aunt Charlotte used to read to him with her puffy cheeks, plum ringed hands, and the moving orbs of her eyes showing under her spectacles. He wasn't exactly accusing the past. Even in his first breeches, he was never what could be called a nice little boy. He had never ordered himself lowly and reverently to any of his betters, at least in her absence. Nevertheless, what stirred in his bosom as he gazed in on this discarded scene was certainly not remorse. He remembered how gingerly, and with what peculiar breathings, his Uncle Timothy used to lift his microscope out of its wooden case, and how, after the necessary manipulation of the instrument, he himself would be bidden mount a footstool and fix his dazzled eye on the slides of sluggish or darting horrors of minute, magnified life. And how, after a steady, um-awing drawl of inapprehensible instruction, his uncle would suddenly flick out a huge silk pocket handkerchief as a signal that little tongue-tied nervous boys were themselves nothing but miserable, sluggish or darting reptiles, and that his nephew was the most deplorable kind of little boy. Jimmy remembered too once asking the loose bow-shaped old gentleman in his chair if he might himself twist the wheel and his Uncle Timothy had replied in a loud ringing voice, and almost as if he were addressing a public meeting, Um, ah, my boy, I say no to that. He said no to most things, 
and just like that, if he vouchsafed speech at all. And then there was church on Sundays, and his hoop on weekdays in the Crescent, and days when, with nothing to do, little Jimmy had been wont to sit watching the cold silvery rain on the window, the body he was in slowly congealing the while into a species of rancid suet pudding. Mornings, too, when his Aunt Charlotte would talk nasally to him about Christianity, or when he was allowed to help his uncle and a tall, scared parlour-maid dust and rearrange the contents of a cabinet or bureau. The smell of the air, the Czech duster, the odious objet d'art, and the ageing old man snorting and looking like a superannuated silliness beside the neat and frightened parlour-maid. It was a curious thing, though death with his lowering grin had beckoned him off. There he was, alive as ever. And when amid these ruminations, Jimmy's eyes had at last fixed themselves on the frayed, dangling cord that hung from the ceiling over the truckle-bed, it was because he had already explored all that the name Soames had stood for. Soames, the butler, a black-clothed, tub-bellied, pompous man that might have been his Uncle Timothy's impoverished first cousin or illegitimate stepbrother, Soames, Soames. Soames used frequently to wring Jimmy's then protuberant ears. Soames sneaked habitually, and with a sort of gloating piety on his drooping face, was invariably present at the subject castigation. Soames had been wont to pile up his plate with lumps of fat that even destiny had never intended should consort with any single leg of mutton or even sirloin of beef, jelly-like, rapidly cooling nuggets of fat and Soames invariably brought him cold rice pudding when there was hot ginger roll. Jimmy remembered the lines that drooped down from his long, pale nose, the sleek set of his whiskers as he stood there in his coat-tails reflected in the glass of the sideboard, carving the Sunday joint. But that slack green bell-cord, his very first glimpse of it had set waggling scores of peculiar remembrances. First, and not so very peculiarly, perhaps, it recalled an occasion when, as he stood before his aunt's footstool to bid her good night, her aggrieved pupils had visibly swum down from beneath their lids out of a nap to fix themselves and look at him at last, as if neither he nor she, either in this or in any other world, had ever so much as seen one another before. Perhaps his own face, if not so puffy, appeared that evening to be unusually pasty and pallid, with those dark rings which even to this day added vivacity and luster to his extremely clear eyes. And his Aunt Charlotte had asked him why he was such a cowardly boy, and so wickedly frightened of the dark. "'You know very well your dear uncle will not permit gas in the attic, so there's no use asking for it. You have nothing on your conscience, I trust. You have not been talking to the servants.' Infallible liar, he had shaken his head and his Aunt Charlotte in return wagged hers at him. "'It's no good staring in that rebellious sullen way at me. I have told you repeatedly that if you really in need of anything, just ring the bell for Soames. A good little boy with nothing on his conscience knows that God watches over him. I hope you are at least trying to be a good little boy. There is a limit even to your uncle's forbearance.' It was perfectly true. Even bad little boys might be watched over in the dead of night. And as for his Uncle Timothy's forbearance, he had discovered the limitations of that fairly early in life. Well, 
It was a pity, he smiled to himself, that his Aunt Charlotte could not be present to see his Uncle Timothy's bedroom on that first celebration of their prodigal nephew's return. Jimmy's first foray had been to range the house from attic to cellar, where he had paused to rest, for candlesticks, and that night something like six dozen of the best wax watched over his heavy and galvanic slumbers in the Arabian bed. Aunt Charlotte, now rather more accustomed to the dark even than Jimmy himself, would have opened her eyes at that. Gamblers are naturally superstitious folk, he supposed, but that was the queerest feature of the whole thing. He had not been conscious of even the slightest apprehension or speculation. It was far rather a kind of ribaldry than any sort of foreboding that had lit up positive constellations of candles, as if for a prince's, as if for a princely cardinal's lying in state. It had taken a devil of a time, too. His Uncle Timothy's port was not the less potent for a long spell of obscure mellowing, and the hand that held the taper had been a shaky one. Yet it had proved an amusing process, too. Almost childish, Jimmy hadn't laughed like that for years, certainly until he had been unconscious of the feeblest squeamish inkling of anything, apart from old remembrances, peculiar in the house. And yet, well, no doubt even the first absurd impulsive experiment that followed had shaken him up. Its result would have been less unexpected if he hadn't made a point and almost a duty of continually patrolling the horrible old vacant London mansion. Hardly a day had lately passed, and there was nothing better to do, but it found him on his rounds. He was not waiting for anything except for the hour, maybe, when he would have to wait no more. Nevertheless, Faithful as the sentinel on Elsinore's hoary ramparts, he would find himself day after day treading almost cat-like on from room to room, surveying his paradoxical inheritance, jotting down a list in a nice order of the next sacrifices, grimacing at the Ming divinities, and pirouetting an occasional long nose at the portraits on the walls. He had sometimes had a few words, animated ones too, with Mrs. Thripps, and perhaps, if he could have persuaded himself to talk sensibly and not gesticulate, not to laugh himself so easily into a fit of coughing, she would have proved better company. She was amazingly honest and punctual and quiet, and why to heaven a woman with such excellent qualities should customarily wear so scared a gleam in her still colourless eyes and be so idiotically timid and nervous in his company, he couldn't imagine. She was being paid handsome wages anyhow, and naturally he was aware of no rooted objection to other people helping themselves, at least if they managed it as skilfully as he did himself. For Mrs. Thripps, it seemed, had never been able in any sense at all to help herself. She was simply a crepe-bonneted motherly creature, if not excessively intelligent, if a little slow in seeing points. It was indeed her alarm when he asked her, if she had happened to notice any young man about the house that had irritated him, though of course it was hardly fair not to explain what had given rise to the question, that was perfectly simple. It was like this. For years, for centuries in fact, Jimmy had been, except in certain unusual circumstances, an exceedingly bad sleeper. He still hated sleeping in the dark. But a multitude of candles at various degrees of exhaustion make rather lively company when you are sick of your Uncle Timothy's cellar, and even the best of vintage wines may prove an ineffectual soporific. His, too, was a wretchedly active mind. 
Even as a boy he had thought a good deal about his uncle and aunt and Soames and the house and the Reverend Mr. Grayson and spectres and schoolmasters and painted nymphs and running away to sea and curios and dead silence and his early childhood. And though since then other enigmas had engaged his attention, this purely automatic and tiresome activity of mind still persisted. On his oath, he had been in some respects and in secret rather a goody-goody little boy, though his piety had been rather the offspring of fear than of love. Had he not been expelled from Mellish's almost solely for that reason, what on earth was the good of repeatedly thrashing a boy when you positively knew that he had lied merely from terror of your roaring voice and horrible white face? But there it was. If there had been someone to talk to, he would not have talked so much to himself. He would not have lain awake thinking, night after night, like a rat in a trap. Thinking was like a fountain. Once it gets going at a certain pressure, well, it is almost impossible to turn it off. And my hat, what odd things come up with the water. On the particular night in question, in spite of the candles and the mice and the moon, he badly wanted company. In a moment of pining yet listless jocosity then, he had merely taken his Aunt Charlotte's advice. True, the sumptuous crimson pleated silk bell-pull dangling like a serpent with a huge tassel for skull over his Uncle Timothy's pillow was a more formidable instrument than the yard or two of frayed green cord in the attic, yet they shared the same purpose. Many a time must his Uncle Timothy have stretched up a large loose hand in that direction when in need of Soames' nocturnal ministrations. And now, alas, both master and man were long since gone the way of all flesh. You couldn't, it appeared, pull bells in your coffin, but Jimmy was not as yet in his coffin, and as soon as his fingers slipped down from the smooth pull, the problem in the abstract, as it were, began to fascinate him. With cold, froggy hands crossed over his beautiful puce-patterned pyjamas, he lay staring at the crimson tassel till he had actually seen the hidden fangs flickeringly jet out at him. The effort, then, must have needed some little courage. It might almost have needed a tinge of inspiration. It was in no sense intended as a challenge. He would, in fact, rather remain alone than chance summoning, well, any once animate relic of the distant past. But obviously, the most practical way of proving, if only to yourself, that you can be content with your own reconnaissances in the very dead of night was to demonstrate to that self that even if you should ask for it, assistant would not be forthcoming. He had been as fantastic as that. At the prolonged, pulsating, faint, distant, tintinabulation, he had fallen back onto his pillow with an absurd little quicket of laughter, like that of a naughty boy up to mischief. But instant sobriety followed. Poor sleepers should endeavour to compose themselves. Tampering with empty space, stirring up echoes in pitch-black pits of darkness is scarcely sedative. And then, as he lay striving with extraordinary fervour not to listen, but to concentrate his mind on the wardrobe and to keep his eyes from the door, that door must gently have opened. It must have opened and as noiselessly closed again. For a more or less decent-looking young man, Seemingly not a day older than himself was now apparent in the room. It might almost be said that he had insinuated himself into the room. 
but well-trained domestics are accustomed to move their limbs and bodies with a becoming unobtrusiveness. There was also that familiar slight inclination of the apologetic in this young man's pose, as he stood there, solitary in his black, in that terrific blaze of candlelight. And for a sheer solid minute, the occupant of the Arabian bed had really stopped thinking. When indeed you positively press your face, so to speak, against the crystalline window of your eyes, your mind is apt to become a perfect vacuum. And Jimmy's first rapid and instinctive, who the devil, had remained inaudible. In the course of the next few days, Jimmy was to become familiar, at least in memory, with the looks of this new young butler or valet. But first impressions are usually the vividest. The dark, blue-gray eyes, the high nose, the scarcely perceptible smile, the slight stoop of the shoulders, there was no doubt of it. There was just a flavor, a flicker there, of resemblance to himself. Not that he himself could ever have cut as respectful and respectable a figure as that. And a smile. The fellow seemed to be ruminating over a thousand dubious, long-interred secrets. Secrets such as one may be a little cautious of digging up, even to share with oneself. His face turned sidelong on his pillow, and through air as visibly transparent as a sheet of glass, Jimmy had steadily regarded this strange bell-answerer, and the bell-answerer had never so much as stirred his frigid, glittering eyes in response. The silence that hung between them produced eventually a peculiar effect on Jimmy. Menials, as a general rule, should be less emphatic personally. Their unobtrusiveness should surely not emphasize their imminence. It had been Jimmy who was the first to withdraw his eyes, only once more to find them settling, as if spellbound on those of his visitor. Yet, after all, there was nothing to take offense at in the young man's countenance or attitude. He did not seem even to be thinking back at the bell-puller, but merely to be awaiting instructions. Yet Jimmy's heart at once rapidly began to beat again beneath his icy hands, and at last he made a perfectly idiotic response. Wagging his head on the pillow, he turned abruptly away. It was only to tell you that I shall need nothing more tonight, he had said. Good heavens, the fatuity of it. He wanted, thirsted for scores upon scores of things. Aladdin's was the cupidity of a simpleton by comparison. Time and the past, for instance, and the ability to breathe again as easily as if it were natural, as natural as the processes of digestion. Why, if you were intent only on a little innocent companionship, one or two of those nymphs up there would be far more amusing company than Mrs. Thripps, if, that is, apart from yearning to their harps and vials, they could be persuaded to scrub and sweep. Jimmy wanted no other kind of help. There is a beauty that is but skin-deep. Altogether, it had been a far from satisfactory experience. Jimmy was nettled. His mincing tones echoed in on his mind. They must have suggested that he was unaccustomed to men's servants and bell-pulls and opulent surroundings, and the fellow had instantly taken him at his word. A solemn little rather agreeable and unservile inclination of the not unfriendly head, and he was gone. And there was Jimmy, absolutely exhausted, coughing his lungs out and entirely incapable of concluding whether the new butler was a creature of actuality or of dream. Well, 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 that was nothing new. That's just how things do take on in one's weak moments in the dead of night. Nevertheless, the experience had apparently proved sedative, 
He had slept like an infant. The morning found him vivacious with curiosity. He had paused to make only an exceedingly negligent toilet before beginning his usual wanderings about the house. Calm, cold daylight reflection may dismiss almost any nocturnal experience as a dream, if at any rate one's temperature in the night hours is habitually above the norm. But Jimmy could not or would not absolutely make up his mind. So clear a picture had his visitant imprinted on his memory that he even found himself, just like a specialist sounding a patient in search of the secret ravages of thysis, he had even found himself stealthily tapping over the basement walls as if in search of a concealed pantry. A foolish proceeding if one has not the least desire in the world to attract the attention of one's neighbours. Having at length satisfied himself in a rather confused fashion that whatever understudy of Soames might share the house with him in the small hours, he must be a butler of the migratory order. Jimmy then began experimenting with the bells. Mounted on a kitchen chair, cornice brush in hand, he had been surprised by Mrs. Thripps in her quiet boots. As he stood gently knocking one by one the full eighteen of the long, greened, crooked jingle row which hung open-mouthed above the immense dresser, she had caught him in the act, and Jimmy had once more exercised his customary glib presence of mind. They ought to be hung in a scale, you know, oughtn't they, Mrs. Thripps? Then we could have home sweet home, and a hunting up and a hunting down, grand size and treble bobs, and a grand maximus, even on weekdays. And if we were in danger of any kind of fire, which you will never be, we could ring them backwards, couldn't we, Mrs. Thripps? Not that there's much quality in them, no medieval monkish tone or tambour in them. They're a bit mouldy, too, and one can't tell t'other from which. Not like St. Faith's. One would have recognised that old clanker in one's shroud, wouldn't one, Mrs. Thripps? Has it ever occurred to you that the first campanologist's real intention was not so much to call the congregation as to summon, well, uh, what the congregation's after? Yes, sir, Mrs. Thipps had agreed, her watery grey eyes fixed largely on the elevated young man. But it don't matter which of them you ring. I'll answer Henny. At least while I'm in the house. I don't think, sir. You've rest your mind enough, my own boy, now. He's in the navy. But with one graceful flourish, Jimmy had wrung his long-handled brush clean east to west along the clanging row. You mustn't, he shouted. You shouldn't. Once aboard the lugger, they are free. It's your mother's. He gently shook his peculiar wand at the flat-looking little old woman. No, Mrs. Thripps, what I'm after is he who is here. Here. Couchant. Perdu. Laird in these same subterranean vaults when you and I are snug in our nightcaps. A most nice-spoken young man, not in the Navy, Mrs. Thripps. And before the old lady had had time to seize any one of these seductive threads of conversation, Jimmy had flashed his usual brilliant smile, or grimace, at her, and soon afterwards sallied out of the house to purchase a further gross or two of candles gently and furtively pushing across the counter half a sovereign, not as a douceur, but merely as from friend to friend, he had similarly smiled back at the secretive-looking old assistant in the staid West End family grocers. No, I didn't suppose you could remember me. One alters, one ages, one deals elsewhere. But anyhow, a happy new year to you, if the next ever comes, you know. You see, sir, the straight-aproned old man had retorted with equal confidentiality. It's not so much the alterations. They are what you might call uncircumventable, sir. It's the stream, sir. Behind the counter here, we are like rocks in it. But even if I can't for the moment put a thought to your face, though it's already stirring in me in a manner of speaking, I shall in the future, sir, 
you may rely upon that, and the same, sir, to you, and many of them, I'm sure. Somehow or other, Jimmy's vanity had been mollified by this pleasing little ceremoniousness, and that even before he had smiled it once again at the saffron young lady in the pay-box. The truth is, my dear, he had assured himself as he once more ascended into the dingy porch, the truth is, when once you begin to tamper, you won't know where you are, you won't really. And that night he had lain soberly on in a peculiar state of physical quiescence and self-satisfaction, his dark bright eyes wandering from nymph to nymph, his hands folded over his breast under the bedclothes, his heart persisting in its usual habits. Nevertheless, the fountain of his thoughts had continued softly to plash on its worn basin. With ears a cock, he had frankly enjoyed inhaling the parched, spent, brilliant air. And when his fingers had at last manifested the faintest possible itch to experiment once more with the bell-pull, he had slipped out of bed, and hastily searching through a little privy case of his uncle's bedside books, had presently slipped back in again, armed with a fat little copy of The Mysteries of Paris, in its original French. The next day, a horrible lassitude descended upon him. For the better part of an hour he had stood staring out of the drawing-room window onto the London street. At last, with a yawn that was almost a groan, and with an absurdly disproportionate effort, he turned himself about. Heavily hung the gilded chandeliers in the long vista of the room, heavily gloomed the gilded furniture. Scarcely distinguishable in the obscurity of the farther wall stood watching him from a mirror what might have appeared to be the shadowy reflection of himself. With a still yet extreme aversion, he kept his eyes fixed on this distant non-entity, hardly realising his own fantastic resolve that if he did catch the least faint independent movement there, he would give Soames Jr. a caustic piece of his mind. He must have been abominably fast asleep for hours when, a night or two afterwards, he had suddenly awakened, sweat streaming along his body, his mouth stretched to a long, narrow O, oh, and his right hand clutching the bell-rope as might a drowning man at a straw. The room was a drowse with light. All was still. The flitting horrors between dream and wake in his mind were already thinning into air. Through their transparency he looked out once more on the substantial, the familiar. His breath came heavily, like puffs of wind over a stormy sea, and yet a profound peace and tranquility was swathing him in. The relaxed mouth was now faintly smiling. Not a sound, not the feeblest, distant, unintended tinkling was trembling up from the abyss. And for a moment or two the young man refrained even from turning his head at the soundless opening and closing of the door. He lay fully conscious that he was not alone, that quiet eyes had him steadily in regard. But like rats, his wits were beginning to busy themselves again, sheer relief from the terrors of sleep, shame of his extremity and weakness, a festering sense of humiliation. Yes, he must save his face at all costs. He must put this preposterous spying valet in his place, Oddly enough, too, out of the deeps a peculiar little vision of recollection had inexplicably obtruded itself into consciousness. It would be a witticism of the first water. They are dreadfully out of season, you know, he began murmuring affectedly into the hush. Dreadfully. But what I'm really pining for is a bunch of primroses. A primrose by the river's brim must be a little conservative. 
His voice was once more trailing off into a maudlin drowsiness. With an effort he roused himself, and now, with an extremely sharp twist of his head, he turned to confront his visitor. But the room was already vacant, the door ajar, and Jimmy's lids were on the point of closing again, sliding down over his tired eyes like leaden shutters, which no power on earth could hinder or restrain, when at the faintest far whisper of sound they swept back suddenly and almost incredibly wide, to drink in all they could of the spectacle of a small, odd-looking child who at the moment had embodied herself in the doorway. She seemed to have not the least intention of returning the compliment. Her whole gaze, from out of her fair, flaxen, pigtailed face, was fixed on the coarse blue-banded kitchen bowl which she was carrying with extreme care and caution in her two narrow hands. The idiots down below had evidently filled it too full of water, but the pale, wide-petaled flowers and thick, crinkled leaves it contained were floating buoyantly, nid-nod to and fro as she moved, pushing on each slippered foot in turn in front of the other, her whole mind concentrated on her task. A plain child, but extraordinarily fair, as fair as the primroses themselves in the congregation of candlelight that motionlessly flooded the room. A narrow-chested, long-chinned little creature, who had evidently outgrown her strength. Jimmy was well accustomed to take things as they come, and his brief sojourn in his uncle's house in his present state of health had already enlarged the confines of the term thing. Anyhow, she was a relief from the valet. He found himself then watching this new visitor, without the least trace of astonishment or even of surprise, and as his dark eyes coursed over the child, he simply couldn't decide whether she most closely took after Soames Jr. or Mrs. Thripps. All he could positively assure himself of was just the look, the family likeness, and that in itself was a queerish coincidence, since whatever your views might be regarding Soames Jr., Mrs. Thripps was real enough, as real at any rate as her scrubbing brush and her wholesome evil-smelling soap, as a matter of fact, Jimmy was taking a very tight hold of himself. His mind might fancifully be compared to a quiet green swarming valley between steep rock-bound hills in which a violent battle was proceeding, standards and horsemen and smoke and terror and violence, but no sound. Deep down somewhere, he really wanted to be nice to the child. She meant no ill. She was a demure, far-away, harmless-looking creature. Ages ago... On the other hand, he wished to heaven they would leave him alone. They were pestering him. He knew perfectly well how far he was gone, and bitterly resented this renewed interference. And if there was one thing he detested, it was being made to look silly. I hope you are trying to be a good little boy. You have not been talking to the servants, that kind of thing. It was, therefore, with mixed feelings and with a tinge of shamefacedness that he heard his own sneering, toneless voice insinuate itself into the silence. And what, Missykins, can I do for you? What, you'll understand, not how. The sneer had degenerated into a snarl. The child at this had not perceptibly faltered. Her face had seemed to lengthen a little, but that might have been due solely to her efforts to deliver her bow without spilling its contents. Indeed, she actually succeeded in doing so, almost before Jimmy had had time to withdraw abruptly from the little gilt-railed table on which he deposited the clumsy pot. Frock, pigtail, red hands, 
She seemed to be as real a fellow creature as you might wish to see, but Jimmy stared quizzically on. Unfortunately, primroses have no scent, so that he could not call on his nose to bear witness to his eyes, and the congested conflict in the green valley was still proceeding. The child had paused. Her hands hung down now as if they were accustomed to service, and her pale blue eyes were fixed on his face in that exasperating manner which suggests that the owner of them is otherwise engaged. Not that she was looking through him. Even the sharpest of his female friends had never been able to boast of that little accomplishment. She was looking into him, as if he occupied time rather than space. Or was she, sneered that weary inward voice again, was she merely waiting for a tip? Look here, said Jimmy, dexterously raising himself to his elbow on the immense lace-fringed pillow. It's all very well. You have managed things quite admirably, considering your age and the season and so on. But I didn't ask for primroses. I asked for violets. That's a very old trick, a very old trick. For one further instant, dark and fair, crafty and simpleton face communed each with each other. But the smile on the one had fainted into a profound childlike contemplation. And then so swift, and imperceptible had been his visitant's evanishment out of the room, that the very space she had occupied seemed to remain for a while outlined in the air, a nebulous shell of vacancy. She must apparently have glided backwards through the doorway, for Jimmy had assuredly not been conscious of the remotest glimpse of her pigtail from behind. Instantly on that, the stony hillside within had resounded with a furious clangour, cries and shouts and screamings, and Jimmy, his face bloodless with rage, his eyes almost blind, with it had leaped out of the great bed as if in murderous pursuit. There must, however, have been an unusual degree or so of fever in his veins that night, so swift was his reaction, for the moment he was on his feet, an almost unendurable self-pity had swept into possession of him. To take a poor devil as literally as that, to catch him off his guard, not to give him the mere fleck of an opportunity to get his balance, to explain, to answer back, curse the primroses— but there was no time to lose. With one hand clutching his pyjamas, the other carrying the bowl, he poked forward out of the flare of the room into the cold lightlessness of the wide stone staircase. Look here, he called down in a low argumentative voice. Look here, you, you can cheat and you can cheat, but to half strangle a fellow in his sleep and then send him up the snuffling caretaker's daughter. No, no, next time you old make-believe, we'd prefer company a little more, a little more congenial. He swayed slightly, grimacing vacantly into the darkness and listening to his speech as dimly as might a sonambulist to the distant roar of falling water. And then, poor benighted creature, Jimmy tried to spit, but his lips and tongue were dry, and that particular insult was spared him. He had stooped laboriously, had put down the earthenware bowl on the Persian mat at the head of the staircase, and was self-congratulatorily re-welcoming himself into the scene of still luster he had dared for that protracted minute to abandon, when he heard, as if from beneath and behind him, a kind of lolloping disquietude, and the sound of a clumsy clawed but persistent animal pushing its uncustomary awkward way up the soap-polished marble staircase. It was to be tit-for-tat, then. The miserable menage had let loose its menagerie, that— they were going to experiment with the mouse-cupboard and keyhole trickery of his childhood. Jimmy was violently shivering. His very toes were clinging to the mat on which he stood. Swaying a little and casting at the same time a strained, whitened glance round the room in which every object rested in the light, as if so it had rested from all eternity, 
He stood mutely and ghastly, listening. Even a large bedroom, five times the size of a small boy's attic, affords little scope for a fugitive, and shutting your eyes, darkening your outward face, is no escape. It had been a silly boast he agreed that challenge, that dare on the staircase, the boast of an idiot, for the congenial company that had now managed to hoof and scrabble its way up the slippery marble staircase was already on the threshold. All was utterly silent now. There was no obvious manifestation of danger. What was peering steadily in upon him out of the obscurity beyond the door was merely a blurred, whitish, beast-like shape with still passive, almost stagnant eyes and its immense fixed face. A perfectly ludicrous object on paper, yet a creature so nauseous to soul and body and with so obscene a greed in its motionless pig-like grin that with one vertiginous swirl Jimmy's candles had swept up in his hand like a lateral race of streaming planets into the outer darkness. If his wet groping fingers had not then encountered one of the carved pedestals of his uncle's bedstead, Jimmy would have fallen. Jimmy would have found, in fact, the thing's physical level. Try as he might, he had never in the days that followed made quite clear in his mind why for the third time he had not made a desperate plunging clutch at the bell rope. The thing must have been Soames Junior's emissary, even if the bird-faced scullery maid with the primroses had not also been one of the staff. That he had desisted simply in case she should herself have answered his summons and so have encountered the spurious animal as she mounted the dark staircase seemed literally too good to be true. Not only was Jimmy no sentimentalist, but that particular kind of goodness, even in a state of mind perfectly calm and collected, was not one of his pleasanter characteristics. Yet facts are facts, even comforting ones. And unless his memory was utterly untrustworthy, he had somehow, somehow contrived to regain his physical balance. Candelabrum in hand, he had actually indeed at last emerged from the room and stooped his dark head over the balusters in search of what unaccountably had not awaited his nearer acquaintance, and he had, he must have, flung the substantial little blue-banded slop-basin, primroses and all, clean straight down in the direction of any kind of sentient target that happened to be in its way. "'You must understand, Mrs. Thripps,' he had afterwards solemnly explained, "'I don't care to be disturbed, and particularly at night.' All litter should, of course, be immediately cleared away. That's merely as things go in a well-regulated household, as in fact they do go. And I see you have replaced the one or two little specimens I was looking over out of the cabinet on the staircase. Pretty things, too, though you hadn't the advantage of being in the service of their late owner, my uncle, as I was. Of course, two breakages cannot be avoided. There, I assure you, you are absolutely free. Moth and rust, Mrs. Thripps. No, all that I was merely inquiring about at the moment is that particular pot. There was an accident last night, primroses and so on, and one might have expected, one might have almost have sworn, Mrs. Thripps, that at least a shard or two, as the psalmist says, would have been pretty conspicuous, even if the water had completely dried away. Not that I heard the smash, mind, I don't go as far as to say that, nor am I making any insinuations whatever. You are the best of creatures, you are indeed. And it's no good looking at me like patience on a monument, because at present life is real and life is earnest. All I mean is that if one for a single moment ceases to guide one's conduct on reasonable lines, well, one comes to a perfectly indescribable cropper, Mrs. Strips, like the pot. 
Mrs. Tripp's grey, untidy head had remained oddly stuck out from her body throughout this harangue. No, sir, she repeated once more. I and Low have searched the house down. There isn't a shadow of what you might be referring to. Not a shadow. And once more, I ask you, sir, let me call in Dr. Stokes. He's a very nice gentleman, and one as keeps as should be kept as close to himself as it being his duty he sees right and proper to do. Chasing and racketing of yourself up and down these runs of naked stairs in the dead of night is no proper place for you, sir, in your state. And I don't like to take responsibility. It's first the candles, then the bells, and then the kitchen, and then the basin. I know what I'm talking about, sir, having lost two and one at sea. And suppose, my dear Jimmy, had almost as brilliantly as ever smiled. Suppose we are all of us at sea. What then? Why then, sir, Mrs. Thripps had courageously retorted, I'd as lief be at the bottom of it. There has been as much worry and trouble in making two ends meet in my life, not to make the getting out of it, of what you'd stand no ceremony for. I say it with all decent respect for what's respectful and proper, sir, but there isn't a morning I step down those area steps by my arts and my mouth for fear, but there won't be anything in the house but what can't answer back. It's been a struggle to keep on, sir, and you as generous a gentleman as need be. If only you'd remain warm and natural in your bed when once there. A little inward trickle of laughter had entertained Jimmy as he watched the shapeless, patient old mouth utter these last few words. That's just it, Mrs. Thripps, he had replied softly. You've done for me far more effectively than anyone I care to remember in my insignificant little lifetime. You have indeed. Jimmy had even touched the hand bent like the claw of a bird around the broom handle. In fact, you know, and I'm bound to confess it as gratefully as need be, they are all of them doing for me as fast as they can. I, I don't complain, not the least little bit in the world. All that I might be asking is how the devil, to put it politely, how the goodness gracious is one to tell which is which. In my particular case, it seems to be the miller that sets the wind, not, of course, that he's got any particular grain to grind, not even wild oats. You funny old mother of a youthful mariner. No, no, no. Even the fact that there wasn't perhaps any pot after all, you'll understand, doesn't positively prove that neither could there have been any primroses, and before next January is four months old, we shall be at the end of yet another April, at least and a sort of almost bluish pallor had spread like a shadow over his face, at least you will be, all of which is only to say, dear madam, as Beaconsfield remarked to old Vic, that I am thanking you now, at which Mrs. Thripps immediately fell upon her knees on her housemaid's pad and plunged her hands into her zinc pail, only instantly after to sit back on her heels, skinny hands on canvas apron, all I say, sir, is we go as we go, and a nicer gentleman taking things on the surface I never worked for. But one don't want to move too much in the public high, sir. Of all the houses below stairs I've worked for and all alone in, I don't want a chance on a more private, in a manner of speaking, than this. All that I was saying, sir, and I wouldn't to none but you, is that life's getting on my nerves. When that door there closes after me, and every day drawing out steady as you can see, without so much as glancing at the clock, I say to myself, well, better that poor young gentleman alone up there at night, coughing all, than me. I wouldn't sleep in this house, sir, not if you was to offer me a plate full of sovereigns, unless, sir, you wanted me. On reflection, Jimmy decided that he had cut almost a gallant figure, as he'd retorted gaily, yet with extraordinary sobriety, you shall have a whole dishful before I'm done, Mrs. Thripps, with a big scoop in it for the gravy, but on my oath, I assure you there's absolutely nothing or nobody in this old barn of a museum except you and me. 
Nobody, unless, of course, you will understand what happens to pull the bell. And that we're not likely to do in broad daylight, are we, Mrs. Thripps? Upon which he had hastily caught up his aunt's handbag and had emerged into a daylight a good deal bleaker, if not broader, than he could gratefully stomach. For a while, Jimmy had let well alone. Indeed, if it had been a mere matter of choice, he would far rather have engaged in a friendly and jocular conversation of this description with his old charwoman than in the endless monologues in which he found himself submerged on other occasions. One later afternoon, for instance, at half-past three by his watch, sitting there by a small fire in the large muffled drawing-room, he at length came definitely to the conclusion that some kind of finality should be reached in his relations with the night staff in his Uncle Timothy's. It was pretty certain that his visit would soon be drawing to a close. Staying out at night until he was almost too exhausted to climb down to the pavement from his hansom, the first April silver of dawn warning the stark and empty chimney-pots had proved a dull and tedious alternative. The mere spectator of gaiety, he concluded, as he stared at the immense picture of the Colosseum on his Uncle Timothy's wall, may have as boring a time as must the slaves who cleaned out the cages of the lions that ate the Christians, and snapping out insults at former old cronies who couldn't help their faces being as tiresome as a whitewashed pigsty, had soon grown wearisome. Jimmy, of course, was accustomed to taking no interest in things which did not interest him, but quite respectable people could manage that equally well. What fretted him almost beyond endurance was an increasing inability to keep his attention fixed on what was really there, what at least all such respectable people one might suppose would unanimously agree was there. A moment's fixture of the eyes, and he would find himself steadily, steadily listening, now in a creeping dread that somewhere, down below, there was a good deal that needed an almost constant attention, and now in sudden alarm that after all there was absolutely nothing. Again and again in recollection he had hung over the unlighted staircase, listening in an extremity of foreboding from the outbreak of rabbit-like childish squeal of terror, which could have proved, well, what would it have proved? My God, what a world, you can prove nothing. The fact that he was all but certain that any such intolerably helpless squeal never had wailed up to him out of its pit of blackness could be only a partial consolation. He hadn't meant to be a beast. It was only his facetious little way, and you would have to be something pretty piggish in pigs to betray a child, however insubstantial, into the nausea and vertigo he had experienced in the presence of that unspeakable abortion. The whole thing had become a fatuous obsession. If, it appeared, you only remained solitary and secluded enough and let your mind wander on in its own sweet way, the problem was almost bound to become, if not your one and only, at least your chief concern. Unless you were preternaturally busy and preoccupied, you simply couldn't live on and on in a haunted house without being occasionally reminded of its ghosts. To dismiss the matter as pure illusion, the spectral picturing of life's fitful fever might be all very well, that is, if you had the blood of a fish. But who on earth had ever found the world the pleasanter and sweeter a place to bid goodbye to simply because it was obviously substantial, whatever that might mean? Simply because it did nothing you wanted it to do unless you paid for it pretty handsomely, or unless you accepted what it proffered with as open a hospitality as Jimmy had bestowed on his pilgrims of the night. Not that he much wanted, however pressing the invitation, to wander off out of his body into a better world, or for that matter, into a worse 
Upstairs under the roof years ago, Jimmy as a small boy would rather have died of terror than meddle with the cord above his bedrail, simply because he knew that Soames Senior was at the other end of it. He had hated Soames, but had merely feared the nothings of his night hours. But suppose Soames had been a different kind of butler. There must be almost as many kinds as there are human beings. Suppose his Uncle Timothy and Aunt Charlotte had chosen theirs a little less idiosyncratically. What then? Well, anyhow, in a sense, he was not sorry life had been a little exciting these last few weeks. How odd that when all but jellied your soul in your body at night or in a dream might merely amuse you like a shilling shocker in the safety of day. The safety of day. At the very cadence of the words in his mind, as he sat there in his aunt's salon, his limbs huddled over Mrs. Thripps's fire, Jimmy's eyes had fixed themselves again. Again he was listening. Was it that if you saw in your mind any distant room or place, that place must actually, at the moment, contain you, some self, some astral body? If so, wouldn't, of course, you hear yourself moving about in it? There was a slight whining wind in the street outside the rainy window that afternoon, and once more the bright idea crossed Jimmy's mind that he should steal upstairs before it was dark, mount up onto the Arabian bed and just cut the bell pull once and for all. But would that necessarily dismiss the staff? Necessarily. His eye wandered to the discreet S of yet another bell pull, that which graced the wall beneath the expansive white marble chimney piece. He hesitated. There was no doubt his mind was now hopelessly jaundiced against all bell ropes, whether they failed to summon one to church or persisted in summoning one to a six-foot hole in a cemetery. His uncle Timothy lay in a mausoleum. On the other hand, he was properly convinced that a gentleman is as a gentleman does, and that it was really up to you to treat all bell answerers with decent courtesy, no matter who, when, where. A universal rule like that is a sheer godsend, if they didn't answer, well, you couldn't help yourself, or rather, you'd have to. This shivering was merely physical. When a fellow is so thin that he can almost hear his ribs grind one against the other when he stoops to pick up a poker, such symptoms must be expected. There was still an hour or two of daylight, even though clouds admitted only a greyish light upon the world, and his Uncle Timothy's house was by nature friendly to gloom. That house at this moment seemed to hang domed upon his shoulders like an immense, imponderable shell. The flames in the chimney whispered, fluttered, hovered, like fitfully playing once happy birds. Supposing if, even against his better judgment, he leaned forward now in his chair, and what was infinitely more conventional and in a sense more proper than summoning unforeseen entities to one's bedside, supposing he gave just one discreet little tug at that small porcelain knob. What would he ask for? He need ask nothing. He could act. Yes, if he could be perfectly sure that some monstrous porcine cacodemon akin to the shapes of childish nightmare would come hoofing up out of the deeps at his behest, well, he would chance it. He would have it out with the brute. It was still day. It was still day. But maybe the ear of pleasanter visitors might catch the muffled tinkle, in the young man's mind there was now no vestige of jocularity. In an instant's lightness of heart he had once thought of purchasing from the stiff-aproned old assistant at his Aunt Charlotte's family grocer's a thumping big box of chocolates. Why, just that one small bowl in famille rose up there couldn't be bartered for the prettiest little necklet of seed pearls. 
She had done her best, with her skimpy shoulders, skimpier pigtail and soda-reddened hands. Pigtail! But no, you might pull real bells to pull dubiously genuine pigtails seem now a feeble jest. The old Jimmy of that kind of facetiousness was a thing of the past. Apart from pigs and tweeny maids, what other peculiar emanations might in the future respond to his summonings? Jimmy's exhausted imagination could only faintly prefigure. For a few minutes a modern St. Anthony sat there in solitude in the vast half-blinded London drawing-room, while shapes and images and apparitions of memory and fantasy sprang into thin being and passed away in his mind. No, no. Do to the book. Quench the candles. Ring the bell. Amen. Amen. He was done with all that. Maledictions and anathemas. They only tangled the hank. So when at last his meagre, stooping body, mutely placed only by the flamelight, he jerked round his narrow head to glance at the distant mirror. It must have been on the mere afterimage, so to speak, of the once quite substantial-looking tweeny maid that his exhausted eyes thirstily fixed themselves. She was there, over there, where Soames Jr. had more than once taken up his obsequious station. She was smiling, if the dusk of the room could be trusted that far, and not through, but really at Jimmy. She was fairer than ever, fairer than the flaxenest of nymphs on his uncle's ceiling, fairer than the saffronest of young ladies in the respectablest of family grocers, fairer even than... Jimmy hung on this simple vision as did dives on the spectacle of Lazarus in bliss. At once, of course, after his very first sigh of relief and welcome, he had turned back on his lips a glib little speech suggesting forgiveness. Let old acquaintance be forgot, that kind of thing. He was too tired even to be clever now and the oddest of convictions had at once come into his mind, seemed almost to fill his body even, that she was waiting for something else. Yes, she was smiling as if in hope. She was waiting to be told to go. Jimmy was no father. He didn't want to be considerate of the raw little creature, to cling to her company, but for a few minutes longer, with a view to returns in kind. No, nothing at all of that. Oh, my God, my God, a voice groaned within him but not at any unprecedented jag or stab of pain. The child was still waiting, quite quietly there, as if a shadow, as if a secret and obscure ray of light, and it seemed to Jimmy that in its patient face hung veil upon veil of uncountable faces of the past, in paint, stone, actuality, dream, that he had glanced at or brooded on in the enormous history of his life, that he may have coveted too, and as well as his rebellious features could and would, he smiled back at her. I understand, my dear, he drew back his dry lips to explain, perfectly, and it was courtesy itself of you to look in when I didn't ring. I didn't. I absolutely put my tongue out at the grinning old knob, but no more of that. One mustn't talk for talking's sake. Else why all those old trappists, though none of them so much as a bag of bones as me, I bet, but without jesting, you know— once more, a distant voice within spoke in Jimmy's ear. It's important, it said. You really must hold your tongue until, well, it holds itself. But Jimmy's face continued to smile. And then, suddenly, every vestige of amusement abandoned it. He stared baldly, almost emptily, at the faint inmate of his solitude. All that I have to say, he muttered, is, is just this. I have Mrs. Thripps. I haven't absolutely cut the wire. I wish to be alone, but if I ring, I'm not asking, you see. 
In time I may be able to know what I want, but what is important now is that no more than that accursed pig were your primroses real, my dear. You see, things must be real. And now I suppose, he had begun shivering again, you must go. You must go. But listen, listen. We part friends. The coals in the grate with a scarcely audible shuffling recomposed themselves to their consuming. When there hasn't been anything there, nothing can be said to have vanished from the place where it has not been. Still Jimmy had felt infinitely colder and immeasurably lonelier when his mouth had thus fallen to silence, and he was so empty and completely exhausted that his one apprehension had been lest he should be unable to ascend the staircase to get to bed. There was no doubt of it. His ultimatum had been instantly effective. The whole house was now preternaturally empty. It was needless even to listen to prove that. So absolute was its pervasive quietude that when at last he gathered his bones together in the effort to rise, to judge from the withering colour of the cinders and ashes in the fireplace, he must have been for some hours asleep, and daybreak must be near. He managed the feat at last, gathered up the tartan travelling shawl that had tented in his scarecrow knees, and lit the only candle in its crystal stick in his Aunt Charlotte's drawing-room, and it was an almost quixotically peaceful though forebodeful Jimmy, who step by step, the fountain of his thoughts completely stilled, his night-mind as clear and sparkling as a cavern bedangled with stalagmites and stalactites, climbed laboriously on and up from wide shallow marble stair to stair. He paused in the corridor above, but the nymphs within, muses, graces, fates, what not, piped in vain their mute decoy. His uncle Timothy's Arabian bed in vain summoned him to its downy embraces. At the wide open door he brandished his guttering candle in a last smiling gesture of farewell, and held on. That is why, when next morning, out of a sounding, slanting shower of rain, Mrs. Thripps admitted herself into the house at the area door, she found the young man, still in his clothes, lying very fast asleep indeed on the truckle bed in the attic. His hands were not only crossed, but convulsively clenched in that position on his breast, and it appeared from certain distressing indications that he must have experienced a severe struggle to refrain from a wild, blind tug at the looped-up length of knotted whipcord above his head. As a matter of fact, it did not occur to the littered old charwoman's mind to speculate whether or not Jimmy had actually made such a last attempt, or whether he had been content merely to wait on a Soames who might, perhaps, like all good servants, come when he was wanted, rather than when he was called. All her own small knowledge of Soames's, though not without comfort, had been acquired at second hand. Nor did Mrs. Thripps waste time in surmising how Jimmy could ever have persuaded himself to loop up the cord like that out of his reach, unless he had first become abysmally ill-content with his small, primitive, and belated knowledge of campanology. She merely looked at what was left of him, her old face almost comically transfixed in its appearance of pity, horror, astonishment, and curiosity. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back. That was Out of the Deep by Walter Dillamere, and it was recommended by David Bailey, so thank you, David, for that. 
he recommended that on September the 13th, 2021. Um, I wanted to do something by Walter Delamere for quite a while, as he is relatively uncovered. I think I did um, a poem by him, The Listeners, I think, or The Empty House, uh, on the, but that was it. So he deserves a bit more than that. So let me tell you something about Walter, or Jack, as he preferred to be called. Walter Delamere is most famous as a poet. He was born in 1873 in Charlton in southeast London, not far from Greenwich. It was then part of the county of Kent, but it's now being gobbled up by Greater London. I think it's part of the um, borough of Greenwich now. He was offered a lighthood twice, but declined, and he died in 1956. So we've gone from birth to death pretty quickly. We only mentioned the knighthood. He died in 1956, aged 83, in Middlesex, again part of London. He had a heart attack in 1947. I'm always morbidly interested in causes of death. And that left him very, very unwell until he died of another heart attack in 56. So he lived, you know, basically another nine years. Now, my uncle, Owen, was a bit like that. He had a bad heart attack when he was 55. And he actually had a heart transplant. And he, he lived till he was 64. But he was a great man, a great, great man. But both of them, probably. Um... Walter de la Mare was very highly regarded as a writer and a poet, and T.S. Eliot wrote a poem for his funeral service, and his ashes are buried in the crypt of St. Paul's Cathedral, so that's a really big accolade from the uh, British crown or state. And his writings were a big favourite of H.P. Lovecraft, and he was admired by Robert Aikman and Ramsey Campbell, so we're seeing some heavy hitters in the world of the weird story from several generations there. You may think about his name, de la Mare, which um, seems to mean something like from the sea. Dumer, Delamere, except it's not feminine, is it? Mm. Anyway, I don't know what it means. So his family were originally French. You probably guessed that. And they were Protestant Huguenots. And you may know something of the Huguenots. They were French people who, who turned to Protestantism at the time of the religious wars in Europe in the 17th century. It lasted for quite a while, the religious wars. And they were persecuted by the French crown. So they skipped over the channel to the Protestant English crown and were given... Um, Asylum there, I suppose you'd say. And a lot of them were business people and did quite well. And his family were ancestrally silk merchants, but his dad was a banker. He was in the Bank of England, so he wasn't... Um, I don't know what rank he was in the Bank of England. I'm, I'm led to believe he was something relatively good up high. And his mother was the daughter of a Scottish naval surgeon. When he was 17, he went to work. So he wasn't the aristocracy or the um, haute bourgeoisie because he had to go and work, and he worked in the statistics department of Standard Oil, which sounds really dull, but he was already writing, and his first volume of work was, he went, went to do that when he was 17, but he had to live, he had to work a little while, because he was 29 before his first uh, volume was published, and then in um, they got him a pension in 1908, and that doesn't mean because he was old, it wasn't an old age pension, it was a pension in to support his writing. Um, and he married his wife, I think Edith, and they met in an amateur dramatic society. And her her uh, family were paupers, well, they were um, bankrupts. And they lived in Annerley, around the corner from where I used to live. So Annerley is a pretty nondescript. He lived around the borough of Penge in southeast London. It's not the most trendy place, really. I went to live there because it was cheap. And it, it's down the hill from Crystal Palace. Crystal Palace is good. The Crystal Palace itself has burned down, of course, a long time ago. I don't remember seeing it. But, you know, I'm not that old. Uh, but um, the the concrete dinosaurs are still lurking around the park, so they're pretty cool. Cool. And apparently him and his wife had lots of parties, and and he corresponded with people like Edward Thomas and other poets. 
when it came to fiction, he wrote a lot of supernatural fiction, mainly supernatural fiction. And we probably do some, All Hallows is another big one. And um, what's his name? Seton's aunt. I forget. Oh, my mind is no good. And uh, anyway, so in his style, he's quite poetic. He uses lots of them big words and he's, he's, he elegantly puts his sentences together. But like Henry James and Faulkner and people like that, they kind of do these long, torturously complex sentences with sub-thoughts and sub-clauses. So they're saying something, have a thought, and then they have another thought, then they have another thought, and they come back. Now, that's all very well. It's very splendidly like Arabian Nights, stories within stories. That was a very, another time we'll talk about that style of storytelling, which I quite like, but that's about a story. And this is a sentence that goes off and comes back, goes off and comes back. It qualifies and it elaborates and it qualifies and all of these things. They're really hard to read out. They're really hard to act out because by the time you have had several thoughts, you have to get back to the first thought. So if the first thought was tragic, speaking in a tragic way, and then the second thought's a bit more upbeat, and the third thought is positively comic, the, uh, the elaboration, and then you have to come back to tragic to finish the sentence. It's like, whoa, that's hard. Anyway, <laughs> you can be the judges how well that was done. Um, I'm doing a bit of um, punch-in punch editing. I used to, what I used to do, just in case you're interested, is I used to edit the whole thing, listen to it, and as I went through, I'd cut out all the breathings and the pauses and all that kind of stuff. Well, punch, punch and roll or punch editing is what you do you, you stop. Every time you make a mistake, you stop and you start again. So sometimes there was one that was um, something about quietude, something quietude. Now, gosh, stumbling over that. So I had to do that about four times. Hopefully you won't notice the gap. But if you do notice a little change in tone, this is the downside of doing it like this. It's potentially quicker. But if I still listen to it anyway, just for spacing. So I listen to it anyway again. But I don't have to do as much with it on the second edit through. Um, so that is much quicker, but, you know, arguably the, the two methods. So basically doing it rough, then going back and editing or editing it on the fly. But, you, but the downside of the editing on the fly are that you um, you hear the tone changes. So I noticed that. So hopefully it wasn't too jarring for you. So this is Out of the Deep. Now, Out of the Deep is one of his famous stories, but you try and find a review of it on the interweb and you will struggle. There are lots of these other stories who get um, reviews, but not this one. So I had to do, I had to think about what it was myself. So let me, let's go through it. The story unfolds very slowly. So Jimmy, who's an orphan boy, it seems, though we're not told that, has been ill-treated or has he by his uncle and aunt, from what we hear, because we're not told. Um, but from his recollections of his childhood, he dislikes their characters. They appeal a bit fusty, fausty, frusty, but they're not cruel to him, I don't think. He doesn't like them because they're old and ugly as well. Uh, and I suppose that when you're young isn't very nice. And he lives in this old house and he lives in an attic and it's not very nice. And Soames the butler is, is the only one who potentially is the, the, an abuser. And he twists his ear. Of course, this happened all the time. When, I mean, my teachers and dinner ladies at school used to do that to me. And this was kind of the norm, but um, it would be abuse these days. Or maybe it was abuse then, who knows? I just didn't realise. Um, none of us did. But anyway, Soames is very nice. So he's got very unhappy memories of the house, and he talks about the hated house. And he hates it so much that even when he inherits it, he waits a while before going into it. And it's almost like he puts off his life, um, so he gets rid of all his friends, and then 
it's almost like he realizes entering this house is like the waiting room. And he goes and he sells um, the items that his uncle has, which uncle was obviously quite wealthy and obviously a bit of a flamboyant character from some of the details. Some of the things he has are very sound quite nice. So we have this, the, the boy's view of his uncle Timothy, which isn't very flattering. And then potentially an, um, an objective view, which we don't get here, is of this guy who tried to teach him the, the I was going to say microphone, tried to teach him the microscope and had some quite nice, nice objets d'art and was clearly well regarded by the tradespeople he had dealings with. So maybe it wasn't all bad, but certainly for the boy, he was miserable. And that may be due to his orphan status, you don't know, but he certainly wasn't very happy and we get the impression that he left home and hasn't come back until this time and he's pretty much cut off his uncle and aunt, now they're deed. So, um, you know, even even the awful memories of childhood, he hates the wallpaper. He lies in his bed and he's a nervous and timid child, we know that, um, what his aunt says, his aunt says, and um, the fatty meat that he's served and the ugly old age and he doesn't like going to church. So he's got nothing good to remember and he seems to have been a very lonely little boy and this has suffused him with misery. And um, he, he lies awake at night when he's back and he talks about the thinking like a fountain and he's got little human company so he just sits there thinking. Now, obviously I have a load of patients who can't sleep and what they do is they lie in bed thinking and thinking's bad, you don't want to be thinking when you're trying to get to sleep because you hear the voice and you just can't sleep because you're taken up with the voice and, and your narrative voice and all the scenarios and all the emotions. So if I'd been speaking to him, I would have done a bit of sleep hygiene with him and he may not then have died, but I wasn't there. So what can you do? So, and, and then he's, he's got this charwoman, Mrs. Thrips, and she is on the surface of it portrayed like all working class people in Victorian Edwardian fiction. So if you read these stories, the working class people are idiots, thugs, or criminals. And I think he's trying to make out she's an idiot, but she isn't an idiot. She's got, she's got some level of compassion. She wants him to go to the doctor. She's clearly worried about him. Um, and he dazzles her with these ever so fancy talk about the bells and this, that, and the other. And, he's, and she is, you know, maybe she's not um, a philosopher or a, an aesthete. She's a hard-working woman who scrubs his floor, but she's not a bad person. At the end, she's horrified and curious. I think um, they're too different, really, um, that she can't, but in so much as she can. So basically what I'm seeing is we have a veil of Jimmy, and he sees it all. His uncle and aunt are not very nice. His youth is not very nice. Mrs. Thrips is a bit stupid. But actually, when you step back, you look at these people and try and get an independent view, they possibly weren't as bad, and Jimmy's misery has clouded all of this that isn't to say he doesn't try and be nice. I don't think there's anything wrong with him as a person. I'd be saying that to him. There's actually nothing wrong with you. You are not a bad person. When he goes to speak to the tradespeople, he's actually pleasant. He does his best to be pleasant with Mrs. Thrips. Um, so that's that. So the horror of it is the misery that suffuses. I've used that word, but I like it. That suffuses the whole house, and it comes from his youth, and he never escapes from it. And of course, we have the imagery of pulling the bell pull. So the bell, pulling the bell pull summons these ghosts. And even when he doesn't want to call them, they come. And I was, I was thinking of, you know, nurses will tell you sometimes that um, when people die, they apparently see their relatives coming for them. And I guess that's a joyful experience. 
that you the people you love come and get you. But in this case, these are strangers. And so it isn't particularly joyful for him, even though they don't appear, these night staff, as he calls them, don't appear to mean him any harm. Um, so, yeah, going back to the bell pull, the bell pull appears to me to be very reminiscent of a noose. So I wasn't, I, I was quite open to the idea that um, he would have hung himself by it, with it. And I wonder if that was possibly what Delamere was um, thinking of, but you weren't allowed to say it in his day. Uh, you know, somebody destroyed themselves, that's what they said. So we have so Who are the night staff? Well, there's three of them. There's young Soames, and it maybe is young Soames, but interestingly he sees a familial resemblance between him and Mrs. Thripps and all of the staff there, all of the night staff. They can't be related. So what is that about? It's They are of a similar kind. They are supposed to be subservient, but actually, whereas they're quiet, they almost subvert that a little bit, the girl and um, young Soames. They wait for him. They're less than subservient. They aren't deferential in the way he would expect. Um, and they're not actually servants. I think he's mistaking what they are. They're psychopomps, aren't they? So the psychopomp is the spirit that the guide, like um, Hermes or Mercury was, to guide the souls to the to the other world, the afterlife. The psychopomp is that spirit, and this is what they are. They're bringing him the the pig-like thing, which I think is um, it reminded me of the monster in the Amityville Horror, uh, which was pig-like. Which I remember reading that in the nineteen seventies. I was horrified by it. I couldn't actually sleep. It was so because of course it was said it was true, and I thought, oh my goodness, if things like this exist, then then what am I supposed to do? In, how can I live if things like this are... Anyway, I was a very dramatic young man. I haven't changed much, to be fair. Uh, and um, so there we are. So I, I tried to look for reviews to see what other people thought what these night stuff were. Other than being psychopomps, I can't actually see... And remember that Delamere was very interested in dreams. A lot of his stories are about this night world. He wrote a book called, uh, which I've got, called... Uh, um, Behold Ye Dreamer, which is like an anthology of snippets about dreaming. And so it clearly was into that kind of nocturnal, nocturne type stuff. And I'm not sure he was, I don't have any evidence that he was interested in psychoanalysis. He does talk about the anima, but it's not Jung's anima he's talking about in one of his writings. But but certainly I thought, well, these Jungian archetypes, is, is the servant girl an anima? the female spirit in the man, and is young Soames the shadow, um, the, the things that he doesn't want to be. And, you know, we could explore that. I'm not getting that massively strongly here. So I actually don't know what they are, I'll be honest with you, apart from their psychopomps, and they are the, like the spirits of the dead awaiting to carry him over. The final thing I wanted to say, which is which is maybe why I found this story so deeply depressing, is that... Um, you will be aware, you will guess probably that in my work I speak to a lot of people who have suffered quite abominable abuse in their childhood and um, they struggle for the rest of their lives to get over that and not all of them manage it, let's say, and that's probably optimistic. Um, so this is what I thought and if we were going to be all 21st century about it we might surmise that that he was the victim of actual abuse, that it's been dissociated and he doesn't want to recount it. But, you know, Soames would be the obvious character 
of the a figure of the abuser and what kind you know was it merely physical and emotional abuse and then yeah that would cast the shadow over the rest of his life i guess on that tremendously depressing note we will stop talking about out of the deep and i think actually the out what i haven't said before is the out of the deep out of what deep it's not um the sea we're talking about so it must be out of the depths of the unconscious i think and interestingly these figures well certainly the pig come up the staircase from below so if we were in analysis we'd make something of that but we're not right well i'm just i'm working loads at the moment i've got a load of jobs and um, i'm sitting just churning this stuff out so i'm doing a private commission for somebody um of an Anne rice book which i'm quite enjoying and i'm also doing um dark world's paris so uh, on, I've created a separate Dark Worlds YouTube channel if you're interested in that kind of thing. And a lot of people who listen to this are not. But, you know, it's the new weird man. And um, I've got a channel, so look it up. And I've got a Kickstarter to, to help fund me write the, thir- the third, yeah, the next book anyway. It's actually the first book and the last book. Hey, isn't that weird? So, you know, if you wanted to support my Kickstarter for that, again, it's, no <laughs> it's up to you whether you do or not. I'll probably write the story anyway. Oh, no, but it won't get published as nicely and it will take longer. So if you want to be my patrons, crack on and do that. You know, I appreciate it. So there we are. Um, It's been sunny. It's not sunny anymore. I've got some seedlings planted out the back, which I keep going and checking on. And we had a bit of rain yesterday, so that was good for them. Um, Otherwise, the weather hasn't been too bad. But I need to have a break. Sheila and I are going away to Berwick over the weekend next coming up. So Berwick's an interesting town. Berwick itself is in England. There's a river, the River Tweed, and Berwickshire is in Scotland. So it, like this side of the border, it changed hands a lot of times. They have a funny accent, which is the Scottish Geordie. There's loads of stuff over there. There's Holy Island, there's Bamber Castle, there's, um, well, it's Adgevrin, you know, Beads, the original um, hill fort of the tribe. There's loads of stuff, loads of stuff, loads of prehistoric rock art. Northumberland's a big empty place, so we're really looking forward to it and I hope it's sunny. And I hope it's getting nice for you as well. This is the 29th of March, 2022, just to give a time stamp. Hope you're all well. I am well. Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so? Isn't that so?